Good morning, church. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church. We're so excited about all the things that God is doing here. In fact, I'm thoroughly excited that tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. we start Vacation Bible School. And if you have a young person that's not already registered and signed up for Vacation Bible School, I think we have a few more slots for them. It starts at 9, ends at noon, and uh, we have an exciting week planned for all the young people. You see these things over here to my right. That's not some interesting new church decor. That's for Vacation Bible School. You see the things out in the lobby and down the kids' wing. That's all geared towards Vacation Bible School. And I know the teachers have prayed. Uh, they've worked to decorate and create decorations. They've worked to, uh, to get lesson plans together. And I hope you'll be praying with us that God will, will meet the needs of all of the workers that are serving next week and that any young person or parent that doesn't know Jesus Christ uh, will maybe intersect with that truth and receive Jesus as their Lord and the payment of their sins. And then I don't know if you've noticed as well, as I pulled in this morning, I was a little annoyed because as you drove into the parking lot, there was all kinds of dirt in the parking lot. But you know what? It's a good dirt. And the reason why it's a good dirt, it means that the parking is being completed. So the extra spaces, almost 50 spaces that we're putting on the north side of the building, they've, uh, they've got it to grade. They put the ABC material on top. They've compacted it down and rolled it out. And now tomorrow morning, Lord willing, if the, the creek don't rise and it doesn't rain, which it could happen, they're going to lay asphalt down tomorrow. Amen? And uh, within the next couple of weeks, that will all be done. They've already dug the footings back here for the addition onto the building. The footing is already dug. They've got some, uh, some dirt that they put in for fill to get it to grade. And so we are moving and grooving. And it looks like we might be able to have a framing party in the next couple of weeks, amen? So I'm going to get some of you guys that are handy and know what a piece of wood looks like and uh, a hammer looks like and some nails and we'll get it all together and there'll be a couple of us that'll supervise and we'll hopefully frame the, the, the building out there and we'll hang the trusses and we don't need to do that. We have the money to pay somebody, but we don't have the time. If we wait on somebody else because framers are the hardest people to get right now, it might take us a couple of extra months. And so I know this person has some skill. I know this person has some skill. I know that person in the back has some skill. And this person over there has some skill. So I'm voluntolding you, amen, and, uh, uh, and letting you know that uh, you have an opportunity to be a part of something here and what we're doing. We framed all of this building, all the exterior framing, interior framing. We hung the trusses. Uh, we were able to do that several years ago, and I know we have some good, capable men. I'm looking at them right now. Uh, I'm calling you out with my eyes now, and we can get it together and get it done, and I'm excited about that. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 7. The, the title of the message this morning is The Blessings of Christianity, part 2. Part 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. There's an old story of a beggar who was situated on a road in the same place for years. In fact, this beggar sat on the road for more than 30 years begging for whatever anyone would give him, and it ended up in those days, it was mostly pennies. 
And one day a man passed by the beggar, and the beggar said, Spare some change, change for the poor. And the man replied, I have nothing to give you. But he said, What are you sitting on? The beggar said, It's an old box that was given to me as a gift, and I've been sitting on it for years. The man said, Have you tried opening it to see what's inside? The beggar replied, of course not. There's nothing inside. It's just a box. It's empty. The man insisted that the beggar look inside, and to his surprise, he discovered a bounty of gold and treasure. But he had never bothered to pry the box open to look. Now, as Christians, we are often the same way. We are sitting on a book that tells us we have a bounty of treasure and we are truly blessed as Christians. In fact, here's what 2 Peter chapter 1 says about this. It says, According as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain unto life and to godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. In other words, God has given us the ability to understand all things uh, about the Christian life and about living the godly life. And then it says this, Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be made partakers of the divine nature, having the ability to escape the corruption of the world that is through lust. Now, 2 Corinthians says it this way about the bounty of blessings we have as Christians. It says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. In other words, you can't even imagine what God has done for you, what God wants to do for you, what God wants to reveal to you. And, and then it goes on to say that God makes these things known unto us by his spirit. And then in Romans chapter 8, it says this. It says that we're heirs, heirs of God, and we're joint heirs because of Jesus Christ. In other words, we stand to inherit the riches and the blessings of the world, but we're acting as if we're sitting on a box and there's nothing in it. Our eyes are clouded, we fully don't understand, and we're living like paupers when we have the riches of heaven at our disposal. In fact, here's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. It says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places because of the relationship of Jesus Christ. Now, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, we have blessings beyond our human comprehension. But sometimes we live like the beggar sitting on a box full of treasure, not able to fully recognize what we have. Now, the last time we met, we looked at the fact that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we are blessed because we have been chosen. We have been chosen. Now, think about this. I heard a story years ago of a, a, a young boy that was adopted into a family. He was about five or six 
when he was adopted into this family, and they're already brothers and sisters in this family. He was number four, and uh, everyone else was older than him, and so he's about seven now, and all of his siblings were older than him, and one day they were teasing him. They were saying, you know, uh, uh, we are part of this family by name. We're part of this family by birth, and you were adopted, and they're giving this little boy a hard time that was adopted into the family, and his, the mom and dad were mortified. How could their children, their other children, do this to their adopted child, their son, that uh, had been brought into the family? And they were mortified, and they went to the little boy trying to console him and, and bring him down a little bit and comfort him. And the little boy said, Mom and Dad, it's okay. I understand with them, they were born into the family, but with me, you chose me. And that's how it is for us as Christians. We are chosen because we chose Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we are changed. The Bible says that we're holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, we don't stand as dirty, rotten, filthy sinners in the eyes of God. If we've been justified, if we've been made righteous in the eyes of God, if we've received Jesus' payment as our own and his payment has canceled out our sin debt, we're holy and without blame in him in love. And then we are God's children we are God's children. I'm looking at all these young people. I, I, I was kind of wondering to myself, why are all these young people sitting over here in this section this morning? And, and then I remembered there's a bake sale for the teens to try to go to uh, camp and, and uh, to get them there and so on. And I was thinking, man, why do I have to look at all these ugly faces? No, I'm just kidding. Why, do I, why are all these young people over here on this side of the auditorium? And, and you know what? Every one of those young people there are someone's precious child. Every one of them. They not, may not have been precious this morning when they got out of bed. <laughs> but every one of them is someone's precious child. And every one of them, when they were born, their parents looked at them and they had hopes and dreams and desires. And they prayed and they asked God to give them wisdom as they were entrusted with this precious life. And when I think about how God looks at us as his children, he looks at us in the same way. We are his own beloved, precious children in Christ. And then we see and we saw as we looked at the text, we're affirmed. The Bible says to the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, uh, we are the recipients of the grace of God. God has chosen to demonstrate his unmerited favor, his love to each and every one of us. And, and because of that, we're affirmed. And not only that, we're accepted. The Bible says, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And today we'll continue to look at this, the tremendous blessings that we as Christians get to enjoy. In fact, if you were to read this, this text, chapter 1 through verse 14, you would understand starting at verse 2 or so, uh, right at verse 3 all the way to verse 12, Paul is writing one long sentence. In other words, it's one long sentence of praise. It's one long sentence of adoration. It's one long sentence of thanking God for the blessings that he's bestowed upon every one of us as believers. And he's trying to get these Ephesians to understand, and even us today, he's trying to get us to understand what we have in Jesus Christ. 
And we see another blessing that we get to enjoy is that Jesus has provided deliverance. And this deliverance gives us redemption. Notice what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, redemption is a payment or a price of a ransom. We understand, according to the text, that the price that was paid was Jesus' own precious blood. And the object was the souls of men and women. Now, all humanity at one time was in the slave market of sin and powerless to deliver themselves. But Jesus provided believers away with the cost of his own blood. Now, during the Bible times, a person could become a slave in one of three ways. He could be born a slave. In fact, children of slaves were automatically slaves as well. And during the Bible times, they say as much as 50% of the population at any given time was a part of the slavery population. Now, he could become a slave by being conquered. The citizens of a city or a nation captured by another city or a nation would be enslaved. He could become a slave through debt. A person who could not pay a debt could be enslaved as the last way to take care of their debt. Now, the Bible speaks of people being slaves in each of these ways. In fact, we are born in sin, receiving a sinful nature from our parents. You ever heard the expression, uh, uh, that child is innocent, that child can't do anything wrong? Usually only grandparents say it. But you know what the Bible says about children? It says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. One of the things I've learned as a dad is I've never had to teach my kids how to do wrong. They figure it all out on their own. I didn't teach uh, my two oldest children how to fight. They figured that all out on their own. They've never saw mom and dad fight. In fact, I don't think they've ever seen us argue with one another. In all the years that we've been married, if we, yeah, we have argued with one another, all right? We just do it behind closed doors, all right? And we don't argue with each other that much, but our children have never seen it. But they've never seen that. They've never seen uh, mom hitting me or dad hitting mom, but I saw my kids with my own two very eyes, and it broke my heart. I thought, how could they hit one another? Where did they learn that from? Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. In fact, the psalmist says it this way in uh, Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. You see, we're born as sinners with a sin nature. We are conquered by sin. Being born into sin leaves us enslaved to the habits and hang-ups that only God can truly deliver us from. Here's what Romans says about our condition before salvation. It says, But God be thanked, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from that heart the form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and we are also slaves of sin through debt. Sin has a price that must be paid, and Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. If every one of us paid what we owed on our sin, there's no one in here that could go to heaven. Every single one of us would go to hell. But redemption means Jesus has delivered us from the slavery to sin by his work on the cross. 
And before we were held captive and could not break free to fulfill God's will, we didn't even desire to fulfill God's will. Now, as believers, we are free to serve God through Jesus' death. And Peter writes this about that situation. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, We're redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from our conversation and the tradition of our fathers, but we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I want you to understand we're redeemed. The ransom for our enslavement to the penalty and power of sin has been paid. Jesus has delivered us, and in his deliverance, he has given redemption. And not only that, Jesus has also given us forgiveness of sins. Paul links forgiveness of sins to redemption, explaining, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, Jesus has provided forgiveness of sins, which is different from redemption. Redemption means being made free, bought back from sin's power so that it no longer rules over us. Forgiveness means that God has literally cleared our slate. He has no more record of our sins he has literally let them all go. They're all gone. I love how David, man after God's own heart, also a great sinner, spoke about this in Psalm 103. This is what he says. He says, as far as the east is from... This is east. This, the east is from the west... So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, do the east and the west ever meet up? No. That's how far he has removed the sins of those that are forgiven. I love how Isaiah writes it. He says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. I love how Jeremiah writes it. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. I love how Micah writes it. He says this in Micah chapter 7, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, we may understand in an ethereal way that God has forgiven every sin that we have as believers, but let me ask you this morning, do we really live like it? Do we really live like it? Now, I believe we need to remember that God doesn't keep the books on the sins that we have committed as believers. They are as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. He has blotted them out as a thick cloud. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. Now, that doesn't mean that we can use grace as a license to sin. Titus chapter 2 tells us that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men and teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. But why is it that we seem to carry around our sins as a black mark of a debtor in a concentration camp? 
And yeah, maybe we've lusted in the past. Maybe we have angered in the past. Maybe we've had wrath. Maybe we physically hurt somebody in our wrath. Uh, maybe we have uh, uh, committed crimes. Maybe we have committed felonies. Maybe we've committed misdemeanors. Maybe we've lusted. Maybe somebody's committed adultery or, or fornication. Maybe we've had all these things in our past. And here's what happens. The devil whispers into our ear and tries to get us to identify with our sin instead of identifying with God's son and we carry around those sins our whole life acting as if we got some badge on our arm and we identify with our sins but Jesus has let them go he has cast them into the depths of the sea and we no longer have to act as if they're holding to us We are redeemed. We are forgiven. And then in Jesus' deliverance, he has given us these things according to the riches of the grace of God. Does anybody know who the richest man in the world is right now? Elon Musk. Do you know what his net worth is? A lot less in the last couple months. <laughs> and a lot less since he tried to buy Twitter. <laughs> $224 billion as of May. Elon Musk, he beats Jeff Bezos by almost $100 billion. And you've heard of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon? So Elon Musk has an immense wealth credited to his name. And let's say the richest man in the world currently, Elon Musk, desired to give of his riches, he could do it in one of two ways. He could give from his riches, or he could give according to his riches. Now, let's say everyone in America received $5 as a gift from Elon. $370 million, $365 million, whatever you want to call it. Everyone in America received a $5 gift from Elon. Now, that would total $1,630,000,000 given from his riches. Now, generous for sure, but it probably wouldn't make a difference in any one of our lives. None of us is going to say, wow, I got $5. I can buy a gallon of gas. I'm just teasing, all right? I'm just teasing. <laughs> you can't. We can't. It's the five. I filled up yesterday. I think it was 529 or something like that. Five, I remember when it was 29 cents. You can't. You can't. You could buy a Starbucks, right? If you didn't get a mocha latte, if you got a tall one, a real small one. None of us would be affected by it if we all got $5 from Elon. But let's say this morning, I announced that Elon's coming to church. Yay, Elon's going to come to church. And let's say 
that Elon wanted to bless all the 500 of us, including children, by divesting all but $4 billion of his $224 billion to each one of us, and then he gave each one of us $440 million. Now, that would change every one of our lives. It would also change the lives of our children. And if everyone tithed, it would change the life of our church. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so $5 to everyone in America would be giving from his riches. But $440 million to each one of us would be giving according to his riches. And when God gives in accordance with his riches, he gives from the unlimited treasure house. Grace, his unlimited, unmerited favor, and overflowing abundance of his unmerited love, inexhaustible in God, and freely accessible through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' deliverance has provided redemption, it has provided forgiveness, and now we they are, are the eternal objects of his divine favor in accordance with his riches, which he lavished on us at salvation and will continue to lavish on us in eternity. And as believers, we are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams because he has given in salvation to each of us the riches of his grace but we're often like the guy sitting on the box. We don't realize what we truly have. We see something secondly. Not only has Jesus provided deliverance, but Jesus provided discernment. Discernment. And one of the ways he has provided discernment, and one of the ways we can understand this, is that Christians can discern their place in the church. Here's what Ephesians 1 says in verse 8. It says wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, the believer is given wisdom and insight. The Greek word for wisdom here is the word sophia, which is uh, emphasizing an understanding of ultimate things, such as life and death, God and man, righteousness and sin, heaven and hell, eternity and time. And Paul here writing to the Ephesians and to us today is speaking of wisdom concerning the things of God. And then God has also, through Jesus, given us prudence or discernment. The Greek word phronesis is a word that has an emphasis on practical understanding. It gives us the idea of comprehension of the needs that we have, the problems and principles of everyday living. Now, God not only forgives us, taking away the sin that corrupts and distorts our lives, but he also gives us the necessary equipment to understand him and to walk through the world day by day in a way that reflects his will and is pleasing to him. And notice what the Bible goes on to say in verse 9. It helps us to understand our place. This wisdom and understanding helps us to understand our place in the church. Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now, the word mystery has the idea of things not yet known. And in chapter 3, the church is called the mystery. In fact, it says this. It says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you word, 
how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote in a few words aforetime, that the Gentiles, verse 6, should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So if you look at the text, verse 9 again, it says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, God is wanting believers to understand that he is using his church to call out a people for himself to ultimately fulfill his will. The church isn't man's idea. The church is God's idea, and God wants to use us together to ultimately make an impact on the world. And then we see he has given us discernment to discern God's total plan for redemption. Now, notice what it says in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, speaking of God's millennial kingdom, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on, in earth, even in him. Now, there is coming a day when all will be gathered together in Christ on earth and in heaven. Now, currently, we have opposing few, uh, forces to Christianity and the truth. In fact, Paul writes about these forces in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we understand right now there's a, a conflict going on, an unseen war between the forces of good, and there's a conflict between the forces of evil. Principalities and powers, they're real. And they're opposing every Christian, and they're opposing every church, and they want to keep the world in darkness, and we understand their forces at work. God's angels and God's messengers today, preachers and the Word of God, and these forces are always in opposition. But there's coming a day when all the enemies of Christ will be subdued, and even the earth itself, which the Bible tells us is groaning, will be redeemed and made new. And all things will be gathered under the headship in Christ in heaven and in earth. Look at the text, verse 10 again. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God's millennial kingdom, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Jesus has also provided discernment in the fact that Christians can understand unity in diversity. Christians can understand unity in diversity. Uh, Pete, where are you from? Beaumont, Texas. Beaumont, Texas. Um, David, where are you from? Um, uh, Troy, where are you from? Blake, where are you from? Um, uh, Diane, where are you from? Is there anybody from Arizona? <laughs> okay, a few of us are from Arizona. Now, just the people that I picked this morning, we're all from different places, and all have different customs, all have different traditions. I mean, you look at the church, and the church is diverse. Some of us are darker than others. I like a little tan, amen? A little spicy. <laughs> Some of us are a little bit more chalky than others. It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's all right. But notice here in the text, 
Paul has been speaking about all the saved, but now he begins to make distinctions to emphasize the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan for salvation, and we see this emphasis in the change of pronouns, and, and I added some parentheses in here so you can understand, as Paul was writing in the original, this is the people groups he's referring to. Verse 11, in whom also we, he has a Jewish background, Jews, have obtained an inheritance, referring to all the covenants and promises of Jews, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that we, Jews, should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. You look at the book of Acts, who were the first people who were saved? Jews. At the Feast of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved, it was Jews. They were coming for the Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, In whom ye, referring to Gentiles, also trusted, after that ye Gentiles heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye Gentiles believed, which is anybody who is a non-practicing Jew, ye Jews and Gentiles were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, Paul is emphasizing and celebrating the miracle of salvation and the union in Christ that Jews and Gentiles had in his day and have also in our day. Now, they all understand they were chosen because Jesus died for all. They are all in Christ. They are holy and without blame in him and love. They all share the same adoption. They all share the same redemption. They all share the same forgiveness. They all share the same wisdom and prudence. They all come from different parts of the world. They all have different upbringings. They all have different customs. They all have different dress styles. They all have different tastes. They all have the same inheritance in Jesus Christ. So why do we allow so many things to separate us as Christians? Why do we allow that to happen? In churches, you'll find sometimes a division. In churches, you'll find cliques. In churches, you'll find a uh, people that seem to be vying for position and, and, and against one another because of the practice, so the practical aspects of Christianity are lived out in a different way. Now, in the church, there is and can be and should be unity in diversity. We too can come from different parts of the world. We too can have different upbringings. We too can have different customs. We too can have different dress styles. We too can have different tastes and still have unity in diversity. We don't have to separate because we have differences. But sometimes churches allow those differences to separate them. Now, some people prefer hymns, timeless songs, as opposed to modern worship songs. And in churches, sometimes you find wars about worship. I want to sing in the garden. And then you have somebody else singing, saying, I want to sing forever rain. And sometimes you allow that diversity to cause disunity. Or you could say, as Paul was encouraging, you can allow that diversity to promote unity. You have it in churches where there's parents at homeschool, and other people prefer to send their kids to Christian school or public school. 
and you have sometimes parents looking at the kids that go to public school or Christian school, looking condescendingly at them because they have another choice in regards to their children's education. And sometimes that diversity causes disunity instead of unity uh, uh, being preserved in the diversity. And I can go on and on and on about any number of things, but Paul's encouragement here is that these Christians can have discernment that their diversity can still produce unity. Now remember, unity isn't the same thing as unanimity. Unanimity is believing exactly the same thing about every issue. And the fact of the matter is you'll never have unanimity in a church unless you have a very small church. I don't even agree with myself most of the time. <laughs> Come on. We see one last thing this morning. Jesus has provided not only discernment and deliverance in the blessings of Christianity, Jesus has provided a down payment. Now, the moment we are saved, the Holy Spirit is God's mark upon the believer's life. In fact, notice the process, verse 13. It says, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth. There's a point in time in someone's life when they make a conscious decision to trust, to put faith in something they have not previously believed. And, and here's what it says. It says, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth. So the word is preached. You hear the word of truth. The Holy Spirit of God illuminates that truth. The truth is the good news, the gospel of your salvation. And then when you make a decision to believe, that's the moment that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. The moment we believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit is God's way of identifying every one of his children. Now, don't misunderstand me and don't misunderstand this truth. Uh, some people will say, well, you know what? You get the Holy Spirit later on after you're saved. The Holy Spirit's a second blessing. Well, let me correct that understanding because here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, notice what it says. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So for somebody to say that the Holy Spirit is a second blessing that comes later on in somebody's salvation, it's clearly wrong doctrinally because the Bible makes it clear that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a child of God. But this is what I want you to understand. The Holy Spirit is God's way of telling every one of us as believers that we are children and there's nothing that can ever change our position. Let's say that tomorrow morning, every one of my children decided that they wanted to change their name. They no longer wanted to be Victoria and Ashlyn and Caitlin and Ryan Zamora. They wanted to be Victoria Smith. Wait a minute, uh, Victoria Jones. <laughs> uh, Ashlyn Bergman. <laughs> uh, Caitlin um, Persimmon. Uh, Ryan, uh, Timothy. They wanted to change their names to something different. Nothing would change the fact, the historical fact, that each one of those girls is still the daughter of Adam and Elizabeth. 
And the same can be said of each of us as children of God. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and you are saved, the Holy Spirit of God is God's mark upon your life that you are truly a believer and that nothing can ever change your position. Then we see one last thing. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we as believers have something to look forward to. Notice what the Bible says in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, speaking of our body and our soul, unto the praise of his glory. Now, believers are literally owned by the Lord, and they're literally under his protection until we're delivered from this world by death or by rapture. Now, along with his mark or seal, the Holy Spirit serves as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The Greek and Roman culture of Paul's day had a custom of making a deposit when they desired ownership of something. It was called an Erebon uh, on something they owned. The Erebon was a down payment, which was a way of communicating that more of the same would be coming. It was the first installment. Now, today we often call it earnest money. So we understand that the spiritual life given to us by the Holy Spirit is an Erebon, a down payment, an installment of what is to come. Now, the Holy Spirit now guides us into God's truth, but there's coming a day when we're going to be delivered from this body and we're going to understand everything that we need to know. The Holy Spirit identifies us as the children of God now, and we struggle with that in our identity and position, but there's coming a day when we're going to fully understand and know what it's like to be a child of God. And so the Holy Spirit is the down payment that every one of us has something to look forward to. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me on heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. We are blessed beyond measure as Christians. Jesus has provided deliverance, redemption, and forgiveness. Jesus has provided discernment. We can discern our place in the church. We can discern God's going to totally make all things right and new. We can discern there can be unity in diversity. And Jesus has provided a down payment. Now imagine you're a billionaire. And you have three $10 bills in your wallet. You get out of a cab and you hand the driver one of the bills for an $8 fare. Later in the day, you look in and find out there's only one $10 bill there, and you say, either I dropped the $10 bill somewhere, or I gave the taxi driver two $10 bills instead of one. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to get all upset? Are you going to go to the police and demand that he search the city for the cab driver because the cab driver chipped you out of $10? No. You're going to shrug. And you're going to say, it doesn't matter. I'm a billionaire. Pastor said, I'm getting $440 million from the Elon Musk, man. I'm a billionaire. You're too rich to be concerned about a loss of $10. Now, this week, maybe somebody criticized you. 
Maybe somebody gossiped about you. They said something that wasn't true. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. You looked at your mutual fund portfolio. <laughs> Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted it to, and these are all real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will this setback disrupt your contentment with life? Will you shake your fist at God, toss and turn all night? If so, I submit that it's because you really don't understand how rich you are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people who hurt your feelings, you may, you may call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and it is, but more fundamentally, you have lost touch with your identity. As a Christian, you're a spiritual billionaire, and you're wringing your hands over $10. So what are we going to do with this today? Are we going to understand that Jesus has really provided deliverance that he's truly redeemed us, he's bought us back, not only to be free from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well? Are we going to continue to walk around with our spiritual weights, not understanding that they're already forgiven by Jesus Christ, but in our minds we still identify with our past and our sin, and it's like we're carrying around a weight that we could easily understand we're encumbered from, but we still want to carry it around because that's what we know? Are we going to understand that God has given us the ability to understand his plan for the church and our place in it? And then we are, are we going to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to remind us that we are children of God and that this world isn't our home. We truly have something better to look forward to.